Welcome everyone. This is Human Capital, a Goalspan podcast, and I'm Jeff Hunt. Today, we're going to focus our conversation on the most strategic decisions that leaders need to make. These include things like buying and selling companies, when to leverage an outside consultant, and the ways you do strategic planning. Even if you're listening to this episode and you're not in a position to make these types of decisions, I think you'll find this discussion interesting. These are the types of decisions that can be so consequential that they impact all employees. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Jeff Rogers, who is the chairman of One Accord. One Accord is a consulting firm located in the Pacific Northwest that assists clients with building operational value and acquiring or selling their companies. One Accord also has a heart for assisting nonprofits and faith-based communities, and they have helped over 450 organizations across the U.S. over the past 22 years. Welcome, Jeff. Well, welcome, Jeff. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for that gracious introduction, as well as the opportunity to just talk to leaders in so many different segments of markets. I really appreciate what you're doing because you're creating value for other people. So it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Well, it's a privilege. And I, you know, hearing you say that you just ran from a board meeting makes me appreciate that you're setting aside some time for our podcast. So <laughs> thanks for setting aside a chunk of time. You're welcome. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We haven't talked too much on the show about these strategic topics but the reality is, like I said in the intro, they really impact everyone in a significant way. Yes. I would like to segment our conversation into three topics, mergers and acquisitions, consulting, and then strategic planning, which is really sort of a subset of consulting. Sure. And before we do that, can you kick us off by giving us a thumbnail of your career journey, Jeff, and sharing with me who or what inspired you most along the way. Thank you for asking. And, you know, you know, we all have story, right? We all have a narrative. The trajectory that we set early in life um, may or may not be related to where we are later in our career. It could be, it very well could be, or it could be very different. And yet, one of those questions that I think most of us work through is what am I called to do or what's my identity? Or, you know, if you're a parent, you can see in, in kids, what's their natural proclivity? What comes easy for them? Uh, we have three daughters and our middle daughter was in choir and was in the select choir and very good. But her older sister uh, going through school the choir director said to her, if she would lip sync, he would pass her. <laughs> okay, so, so she was not gifted to sing where the other was. We have a daughter that's in human-centered design engineering and data analytics, and yet I have another that graduated in creative writing and literature. They see things very differently, right? So we have this question of, you know, how am I wired? And then I think you, you integrate that or you mix it with experiences that you have that then you can leverage for your career. So there's a mix of what comes naturally and then what did I learn? And so as you asked about my career and I got started, I, I, I started, I think, in a pretty humble way as I was recruited while a student studying finance at the University of Washington to sell educational books door to door, moving at that in that case uh, to Texas, 
with this company based out of Nashville. And over a period of numerous summers, I paid my way through school. I knocked on 300,000 doors. Wow. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah. I had actually calluses on my knuckles and it was a great education, right? And I learned a lot about other people, but I also learned a lot about myself. And through that experience, I developed certain aptitudes and yet maybe they were overlaid on top of who I already was. I don't think at 18 or 19, I really knew too much who I was. And I ended up working for that company full-time and was there 20 years and worked in development of other, other countries, actually opening up other teams. And I worked on 40 university campuses, recruiting, training, and developing salespeople. So that was a 20-year career from 80 to 99. In 99, rewinding for those that would remember, the economy was going tremendously well. It's very strong. There was a bunch of IPOs, business plans on back of napkins. You know, the internet had just started. People had cell phones, but not everybody used email. You know, it's not that long ago. And so I left that job after 20 years searching for what I was going to do next. Unaware, I didn't leave to know what I was going to do. I knew I was time to transition. And I think some listeners are even asking the question, you know, are they in the right position? And should you look for another job while you're in a job? That's a personal question based on your ethic and perspective. But I decided to try and finish that job strong, take a time, little time off to figure out what was next. And so through that, I ended up starting our own business, One Accord, in the fall of 99. So really, let's say 2000. And so since 2000, I built and partnered with others within our business, not just me, uh, to build One Accord where it is today. So I have a history of coming from literally selling door to door and recruiting people to do that to now having a portfolio of companies doing, you know, mergers and acquisitions. We've worked with about 150 nonprofits and 450 private companies. And yet my trajectory wasn't a Harvard Wall Street trajectory and corporate finance to do it. I came through one path thought I learned some things and would hope that there was relevance to it in the marketplace. There ended up being some. Some things I assumed were true, some were not. And I think that's how a lot of people actually start businesses with the belief that there's something they know or understand that can be used. And so the, the career has been, what am I naturally gifted at? Then what do I enjoy? Mixed with, I think, a a marathon approach versus a sprint approach of being steadfast in continuing to work even when the motivation wasn't there, even when the alignment wasn't there to continue to press forward. So there have been some seasons that sounds really glorious. There are some deep, deep, difficult times along that journey of where I didn't know if the business would make it or if I was even the right person to run it. And I'll save that for further inquisition or people can follow up with me and I can dialogue with them on it. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because often the perspective on people who have really excelled in their career is that they haven't experienced those levels of hardship when those levels of hardship are really ultimately what define us. But I guess my follow-on is, 
in that journey, in your journey, were there any people that come to mind that really inspired you to keep going, even in the midst of those difficult times? I appreciate the question. And, and I'm not doing deference to handfuls of individuals who have been a blessing to me and an encouragement along the way. I'm going to focus on four, and I'll give you quickly why those four. Early on in my career, Alan Clements was the senior vice president of the company I worked with. And he looked at me when I was 19 years old, and we were talking about what we do. And I said, our business really isn't about the books we sell, the medium of exchange, is it? It's about developing people. And we're in a meeting in Arizona and he looked at me and he just said, you got it. You're going to do very, very well. And someone that could affirm a young person in business to say, you're going to do well. Well, I looked at him as the epitome of success based on where he was in the company. And so that conversation that I can recall right now, 40 years later, was obviously meaningful. And so I think the power of words and speaking into someone else of life and what you can see in them, when you have that nudge, when you have that little conviction in you, it, take action on it, tell them, text them, call them, say, hey, I was thinking of you. I think you're great at this. You never know to someone coming up what you can mean. So there's, that's one. Two is there are two gentlemen, Barry Horn and Bob Newber, both very well-known business leaders in the Northwest in the segments that they work in. Uh, Barry's company was, he grew to over a billion in revenue and it was acquired by a Warren Buffett company. And then Bob Newber owns and has transitioned a large accounting firm here by the name of Clark Newber, both highly respected. And I have two gentlemen that are more seasoned in me in age and experience who have been mentors that I can go to when I'm stuck. And just to say, I'm facing this scenario. So for example, we have a number of team members in our business at one accord. And I went to Bob Newber and I said, how do you decide what your equity structure should be? Do people buy in or they granted shares? Do they automatically become a partner? Then if they are a partner, how do they get their exit value if they want to transition out? I had no idea. I came up in a privately held company that didn't operate that way. And I needed someone who could speak into me. So having Barry and Bob, people to go to, you don't need an army of them, but I think you need a couple that can help you. And the last is a gentleman, Greg Brenneman, who was on Wall Street and helped co-found Bain Capital. And I was on a nonprofit board meeting, a faith-based marketplace organization. We founded one here called Kairos. It's K-I-R-O-S.org. This uh, gentleman was on the board and involved in a group called New Canaan Society. At a board meeting, he said, hey, what do you do? And I said, well, we help private companies grow their value. And how do you do that? And he looked at me and Jeff, he said, well, if you do that, why don't you buy some of them? No, it's funny. I had like a two minute silence. Like, I don't know what to say. Now, this guy has his own capital fund today that I think it's 14, 15 billion. He, you know, he's a Harvard, Wharton, Wall Street. I looked and I said, I don't know how. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, look, you went to school and you were in a trajectory in the ecosystem of learning how to do this and then ended up at 
Bain and Bain Capital and so on. I said, I sold books door to door. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea how you would do what you're talking about. He said, you want me to coach you? I said, what? He said, do you want me to teach you how to do it? He invested two years with me on the phone, pre-Zoom, walking me through how you would set up a fund and how you could do acquisitions. Today, we've purchased, yesterday I closed our seventh company that we own. And they're all manufacturing distribution and service. They're not consulting. They're very different types of businesses. Baby boomer owned companies that are transitioning. Had he not said that to me, I don't think I would have ever gone in this direction. I think we would have had our consultative business and continued on. And I don't think this whole world of actually running companies and developing future leaders through those would have ever entered my mind because I wouldn't have thought I could do it. So career history, you got the first part. The second part has been influenced significantly by a few people that have spoken, I think, what I would say is truth into me, that they saw in me things I didn't see in myself. That's such a great story, set of stories. And what I'm just reflecting on, Jeff, is one of the things that you said in the beginning, which is pay attention to those nudges because they can change the trajectory of somebody's career in their life. There are times where I know I'm guilty of having that nudge and not taking action. And I know what that feels like, but then there's also times when I'm following that nudge and it's tremendous to be able to encourage and inspire others. And we also benefit as a result in terms of of that. Yes, and I think in, in our world, we often think, oh, I'm bothering someone or they're so busy. And I just believe if you get a nudge, just take the little action that, you know, I leave voicemails all the time saying, don't call me back. You don't need to call me back unless you need to call me back. Right. Otherwise, I'm just leaving you this message to encourage you. You're on my mind. I think you're great. Here's what you're good at. And I hang up. Yeah. Nine out of 10 times are like, you called it the perfect time. I need to talk. I'm like, well, maybe it was more of a nudge from, you know, a, a greater understanding than I have. Right. But I think taking those steps like those gentlemen did for me was really significant. Exactly. I'd love to jump into some of these topics. The first one is really what you have so much experience in, which is mergers and acquisitions. And to tee this up, it's fascinating looking at the data. And so I want to set the table for our conversation. If you look at 2021, last year, global M&A activity hit record highs, uh, exceeding 62,000 transactions. That number was up 24% over the prior year, which of course was the first year of the pandemic. So that's part of it. And this sort of frenzy of activity was fueled by a number of things, including demand for technology and pent up demand from the pandemic, the first pandemic year. The reality though, Jeff, is unfortunately, many of these acquisitions fail. Uh, According to Investopedia, about 50% of them fail on average. Mm-hmm. And some studies have put the figure closer to between 70 and 90% of acquisitions fail. Let's get pragmatic for a minute. Why do so many deals fail? And as a follow-on to that, what can be done to prevent that? I want to back up and affirm, Jeff, just the data though. So 
because uh, to, to, I don't come from M&A, right? I wasn't raised in it. I was in business, right? We're doing consulting and understanding the impact of what's going on, I think is important just for someone working in any business to, to understand behind the scenes, the dynamics. So right now there's about roughly in today's dollars, $10 trillion worth of dollar transfer that's gonna take place over the next 10 to 15 years is you see baby boomers matriculate. And I, I think it's over 90% of jobs are held in, I think it's 96 or something, but over 90% of jobs are held in private companies. They're not in public companies, right? Okay, it is suggested that 85% of those companies are gonna transition ownership in the next 15 years. 85, so 85% of our, 90% of our workforce are going to flip over. Well, why? Because you have boomers that are aging out and whether they're proactive in making that transition or reactive, even being their estate, it's going to happen and it's, it's going to accelerate. It's not decelerating. Sure, the pandemic had some influence, but a greater tide, it's a tsunami. The tsunami take the pandemic out is still coming through and is not even totally crested yet. And so we, I think we should all be aware that this needs to happen and that companies and leaders should be astute in thinking about how we pass the baton and whether it's an internal transition an ESOP, a generational transition, or most often those have not been planned and therefore it just ends up being an acquisition. So the, the swell and the impact and looking at some of the signs that things are happening and being aware of your role in the position to say, hey, do I see activity that looks like this company might even be sold? It's probably astute to see. And there are things you see in terms of spending and investment and corporate culture change and so on to be aware of. Now, why do some make it and some don't? It is a very difficult scenario to follow an owner founder being the next owner in that seat from not being the founder. I think the single biggest thing is culture. The continuity between the owner founder and the next, the next owner is changed. And as much as we can keep things the same for a season that people feel comfort and secure and in a generic sense, loved, appreciated. We're, we're not going to pull the rug out from under them. Uh, we hold companies a long time. We're not flip. We don't flip any companies. So that's a bit different. Uh, but even if you're the acquirer that you get to know the people and, and keep things um, as they were for a season before starting to affect change and slow down that pace because companies are made up of people, not spreadsheets. That's the single biggest thing. Now, if I were to add a couple layers, I'll go here quickly. Get to know the people in the organization, not just the role, but the person, it, which means just meet with them. That doesn't happen. So I'm going to tell you true, two weeks ago, a company that just sold, and I was talking to the CEO, and he said, 
okay, through the acquisition process and now two weeks post, he has never talked to the new owner. This is the CEO. He's literally, he goes, I don't know my job description. I don't know my compensation. I don't know the expectations for me. He said, I'm left, I'm running the company still, I'm still getting paid, but that is emblematic of kind of this, hey, we got the deal done. You know, so it's kind of that old adage, you know, our goal was to make it to the Super Bowl, right? Versus we're playing to win the Super Bowl. And I think a lot of people think as a transaction is it's done now. And I'm like, we just closed the company yesterday and we sent a note out to all the investors. I did last night at about 1130 that says now the work begins. It's not finished. It's just started now. So get to, get to know the people would be one that's very, very simple. And number two, there's this statement that says, uh, it comes out of the Bible, that without vision, people perish. Well, the, the reverse is with vision, they flourish. So help create what's the vision about how we're all going to win. In other words, how is this good for me, not the buyer, the, the team of the company that's going through this? How's it good for them? So create a vision about where we're trying to go. That there's two tips. What's interesting to me is that these concepts are actually quite simple. So what you're talking about is having a proactive communication strategy. Correct. Looking at the transaction as one that is not purely financial, but is people. It is a people-oriented change that is occurring and to really take that to heart before during and after the acquisition takes place if you think about what people really want jeff to me it seems like mostly what they want they want to be seen and heard so that they want to be able to have a voice and be able to speak up and know that people care for them individually right so that they're not just a producer but they're a person and we care about that individual in terms of who they are, uh, their friends and families, their, the things that they enjoy in their lives. And they also want some sort of sense of security, which can't always be provided within an acquisition. So sometimes there are segments of the working population that get let go, but the greater the transparency in the midst of the transaction, the greater the communication and the openness uh, that is possible from the buyer to the employees of the company that was acquired, the greater the levels of trust and an understanding and engagement are. Wouldn't you say those are all truisms? Spot on. Let's, let's put really rubber meets the road. You're buying a company or you're involved in that transition taking place, send one or two people on your team for a couple of weeks to meet with every employee if possible, but at least all the department heads, not just the CEO. And listen, take an hour, say, I just want to get to know you. Tell me your story. What's your role? What are you doing? What would you like to see in the future? And then whatever they say, make sure to respond to them with, here's what I'm going to do with what you said, right? And then take that back to you, the leadership team and say, okay, this is what I heard. So just a person literally whose role is to listen to the team and learn from the team. 
one accord, the word we use is consulting, but we're really the, almost the antithesis of consultants because all our team are people that have built, run, and exited companies. They've actually sat in the shoes. None of our team comes from consulting. They don't really have that background. It's just the easiest word to encapsulate what that one part of our business does. But in the companies that we help facilitate transition, we actually bring one of our key team members to do exactly what I said, which is to sit in the seat and go listen and learn. You would find that probably eight out of 10 things that need to be done in the business, the ideas already reside within the walls of the company. They're just not heard. We're not that brilliant. Now, once in a while, I still don't think we're brilliant, but we'll pull something from something else we've seen in another business that we could use. But eight out of the 10 ideas that caused the significant growth in company reside within the team members there, listening to them, aggregating that feedback, and then aligning it with strategy, which will get into the strategic planning conversation a bit. Right, right. And, you know, you can get a lot of lift and growth from the people that are there that probably understand the customer and the needs, sometimes better than the owner or the leader that's there. Great advice. Yes, definitely. Let's talk about consulting. I know you mentioned that you don't really see yourselves as consultants, which I appreciate. Uh, we have a consulting arm at Goalspan as well, and we, we think and operate similarly. But I'd love it if you could speak to leaders who have never used a business consultant before. What do they need to know about? And when, when will they know when they should hire an outsider to help them? Okay, great question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give two analogies to this to first just help the belief that should I even have one or does it make sense? Here's a picture I'm going to give. I had a really bad lower back. I ruptured two discs. Ooh, I'm wow. trying to, so I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I got an MRI, got a couple x-rays. Okay, I went and saw a chiropractor. Jeff, what do you think the chiropractor said I should do? Realign everything. Yep, for sure. Okay. I went to an acupuncturist. What did the acupuncturist say I should do? Be in the present moment and release your pain. <laughs> well, and do acupuncture. Right. Do acupuncture. They, yeah. Release it. What, what's called deep needle. And they deaden some nerves. And, okay. And I went to a surgeon, actually three surgeons. What did the surgeon say I should do? We can open you up and fix you physiologically. Right, right. So they saw things through their own set of lenses. And I, and I would say, let's give them deference that they were accurate, they were correct based on their, their way they see things, their worldview. So most of us running private companies and most of us in that seat have a hard time uh, with a consultant, quote unquote, coming in who's not been in our company and doesn't know the idiosyncrasies and is going to have a certain set of lenses they see, see, see things through. First is to come to a recognition that having different points of view as I explored what to do on my back was actually healthy. I was willing to seek counsel and not just one point of view. I was willing to open the kimono, so to speak. Okay, so that's really the first thing. Would external objective opinions be helpful for me to either solve a problem I have, which is usually when you get called in because there's a problem, or perhaps of the few to be proactive 
around what it is we want to accomplish and how to grow. So I think the first thing is an acceptance to say, I'll be willing to get another opinion. Okay, that's first. The second thing is, I'll draw a second story, is I work out at a club uh, in our area, and I work out in the same area. It's got five, four or five floors, and I work out at one floor in one section, the basement, no windows, it's the old equipment, but it's the easiest for me from the locker room. I go in there, I do my thing, come out. So I've been, been in there about six years, and I see people come in and out. And, you know, that are starting and they're evidently new because I'm there at kind of the same time. So I, I know the regulars and, okay, the people that show up that have a trainer versus those that don't. Yeah. Okay. This is my data. I'll just throw it out to you. People that show up, they're going to be working out. They don't have a trainer. How, what percent do you think are there three months later? It's got to be a very low percentage. I, I have no idea, but I'm going to say 20 or 30%, maybe. I, I mean, I would put it 10 to 20. 10 to okay. 20. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Of those that have a trainer, what's that percent? Ah, 70, somewhere in there. 70 to 80. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. It's just different. Now, some people I would see, they'll use a trainer to get on a routine, then they can back off and they'll, they'll keep a high percentage. The point is, what do you do to increase your statistical odds? Can you do it on your own? Probably. But as a business owner, I've brought in outside counsel. So let's call it that, not consulting. But I've brought in outside counsel in specific areas multiple times. I actually paid our team to do our process called the discovery diagnostic, which is like an MRI on a business. Sure. I paid our team to do it on us. Mm. Not fun. I bet. Seriously, because they're there to tell me what's not working. Exactly. So not to, you know, a few good things, but here's some things you can improve. And, and they did a good job of narrowing that down to two or three tactical and two or three strategic, not like here's 20 things, right? right. And let's take some, let's actually take tactical and start knocking off some low hanging fruit. That's what we did. But I, I think it is first to say, am I open to counsel? Okay, one. And number two, am I willing to get someone that can actually hold me accountable a little bit to take from ideation into execution and increase your odds? So that's my kind of foundational. Now back to your back to your question. You know, what do you do to help this be successful, right? How do you find that that person can really add the value that you're looking for and not be like the strategic plan that you did that you spent a bunch of money on and then it sits on the shelf and collects dust. How do you help that? You have to first identify and narrow down what the specific issue that you're working on and then find someone who's a deep subject matter expert in that area. The reality is that most privately held companies, I said this earlier, in most companies, the ideas of what you can do exist within the team, probably 70 to 80%. Not always does every person on the team feel safe or comfortable to share those. So sometimes someone that's external can be objective, can gather that information and assimilate it in a way that can be received by the business leader or owner. So there's, there's that part, I think, of, okay, we have some issues. Okay, the second thing is in most privately held companies, you're typically excellent 
at the thing you do or you wouldn't be in business. The big guys, the public ones would knock you out. For some reason, competition can't take you out. So you must be really good at the product or service. But there's three parts of the business kind of in a macro that I look at. There's the thing you do. So you have to have the operations to deliver what you do. There's the revenue engine that actually gets customers, whatever you do, sales, marketing, biz dev, right? So you've got, you got to make the product. You have to make sure that, you know, something people want. And then you got to make sure the financial mechanisms of it work. And that's everything from, you know, CFO work to the billing and the controller and all that. Well, typically people go into the business of the thing they're great at, but that's not probably sales and marketing. And that's probably not administrative and finance. Now, HR and legal and IT are all other functions that support within that. So what I have found is you probably have an area that you know you're not as strong. It will behoove you to accelerate the business to find someone who's expert in that area that can come in objectively, get feedback that otherwise people in your own team may not be willing to say or provide you. And then we can talk in future questions if you want. You know, how do you make sure that those deliverables actually work? What's coming to mind for me is Patrick Lencioni. You know, he wrote all these great books, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team and The Ideal Team Player and all these great books. He coined the phrase, ambiguity is the enemy of accountability. And what I'm hearing you say, Jeff, is ultimately, whether you're talking about selling a company or major strategic decisions, how you're moving in the marketplace, whether you're a boomer and you're trying to exit, building a vision waves away a lot of that ambiguity and allows for accountability. So if I'm intentional and I think about where I want to go as an organization and an individual, and then I've clearly defined that, and then I build in structures and plans that are really pragmatic, that allow me to make progress over time, eventually I'm gonna get there. And it might not be exactly what I intend, but it's probably gonna be something close, right? Yes, and again, if you're gonna show up to the club anyways, it probably makes sense to have the trainer because you're gonna spend the money. So in other words, you have a business, you're gonna be in business. Why don't you increase the odds of it being successful and put together a strategic plan? Look, even if only one out of three times it worked, do it three years in a row, then statistically at least once it'll work. And you'll probably, you'll probably be ahead of where you were if you never did it. Yeah, that makes great sense. All right, let's switch to some lightning round questions. I'm going to ask you a few questions. I wanted to just hear your top of mind answers. This is fun. The first one is, what are you most grateful for? You know, by the way, just to be really straightforward, Jeff gave me no prep on these. These are lightning round right off the cuff. Um, relationships. So I'm just thankful to have, starting with my family, uh, with our Lord, but um, in our community, trying to invest in relationships. I think relationships should transcend transactions. Definitely. What is the most difficult leadership lesson you've learned over your career? As I said, I, I brought our own team in to do our process and they were delivering the results and I was sitting listening. And to our leadership team, I looked and I said, as I look at this, out of the 10 things you've identified, the majority of those are me. I said, of those, eight of those 10 problems are me. And they looked and they go, no, just seven. <laughs> 
And I, I called my wife after that meeting and said, I just got fired. And she said, how'd you get fired? It's our company. I said, well, the question is, what's more important, my role or the mission of the organization? So if it's my role, you're right, I can stay. If it's the mission of the organization, I need to step down. That was the hardest thing. That's a great lesson. Who is one person you would interview if you could, living or not? You know what I would say based on kind of my faith is that that person that I think the calendar is somewhat tied to it. And so, but there, you know, there are many people I think we can learn from that would be of interest. And so right now, I'm going to give you one that probably most wouldn't say, but my daughter just asked me this question. I said, Lewis Hamilton. Oh. He's a Formula One race car driver. His helmet, you can see in the back behind me. And he has remained relatively humble in a sport that is all about that person. And he's been able to win consecutive titles, um, which is incredibly difficult. And he came back after a massive setback last year that most people probably would have hung up their cleats. And I'd be just curious what keeps him going. Now, I could probably find it out on YouTube, (laughs) but I think he'd be very interested in a current season to learn from. Do you have a top book recommendation? Yes, and I'll be very specific. I will tell you that just based on my personal convictions, I listen to uh, scripture just over and over, and that's what I do when I work out. And it's a renewing of my mind. It keeps me grounded. So that, be it podcasts for people or whatever, I find that that medium, your podcast is a good example of, you know, that listening time. But I will recommend a couple of books to be very specific. I've already referenced two of them. I think Good to Great is very good for business owners, as is Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Um, the book Traction by Gina Wickman, if I were to give one for privately held companies. And there's a book that people don't know. It's called Right Away and All at Once. It's a long title, Right Away and All at Once by Greg Brenneman. And Greg was the gentleman I referenced that was the co-founder of Bain Capital. And in his book, he talks about, he has numerous portfolio companies and what he has seen that works and doesn't work. And it's kind of akin to traction. He gives very specifics that business leaders can implement all the way up to large public entities, public companies. So his content is really good from kind of small business through enterprise public company. So right away and all at once is when people don't know. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? You know, when my girls have headed off to college, I sit down and I've had a dinner with them and I have three daughters, one's adopted. Um, they're very different from each other. And I've said, there's, there's two things I want to share with you. One is to find your identity and who God says you are, not what the world says. And number two is be authentic to it. I said, now, number one, I don't know how to do it. I find my identity so much in what I do. I'm trying not to and how I do at it. I'm trying not to have that be my identity. But the more you can understand who you are and then be authentic to that reality saying, I'm actually not good at most things. (laughs) You know, as a business owner, I'm really, I'm actually not that good at a whole bunch of stuff. And once you realize that it's very freeing, my job is to find someone else that that is what they're good at and empower them to do it. Let them do it and give them the latitude to do it well. So I think the 
understanding who you've been designed to be. I think we have a design and then learning to be authentic because that's where your leverage is. You, you can work out a strength and develop skill sets and where you're not gifted. That's true. Okay. But there's a natural bent. That's where your leverage exists. So the, I had two coaches that I worked with and I've hired two different coaches to work with me. So eating our own dog food that are non one accord folks. And they both really leveraged into that. Let's figure out who you are. And in your business, sometimes people call it your superpower, right? Right, right. It's going to be around that thing. Got it. So that would be, who are you? How do you be authentic to it? So as we wrap up, what's the most important takeaway to leave our listeners from our talk today? Well, I want to affirm, I'll say secondarily, I applaud anybody for being here today and listening, because as I mentioned, one of my mentors at the outset, Barry Horn, Barry's older than I am. He's always telling me, Jeff, about the newest book he's read and the newest exercise he's doing, and it's the best ever. And I'm like, I realize, wow, you're probably 15, 20 years my senior, and you continue to learn and read and study and grow. He's never stagnant, right? <laughs> right. He's never stagnant. So he keeps investing in new ideas and new material. But again, I would go back to number one is knowing who you are and finding your leverage in that zone and letting other people do what they're gifted at and empower them and let them go. Don't, don't hold them back. As long as they stay within your values, not the way you would do it, but the values, they have to be consistent. You're going to find your organization will likely thrive if you do that. Great piece of wisdom. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing all this great uh, information. It's a pleasure. It really has been an honor. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. Let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing humancapital at goalspan.com. Human Capital is produced by Goalspan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.